Then he brought me in a spirit-inspired trance to a desert. There I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast and was covered with blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing, and she glittered with gold and jewels and pearls. In her hand she held a gold cup full of the vile and impure things that came from her activity as a prostitute. A name, a mystery, was written on her forehead. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the vile things of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk on the blood of the saints and the blood of Jesus' witnesses. I was completely stunned when I saw her. Then the angel said to me, Why are you amazed? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the seven-headed, ten-horned beast that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on earth whose names haven't been written in the scroll of life from the time the earth was made will be amazed when they see the beast because it was and is not and will will again be present. This calls for an understanding mind. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Five kings have fallen, the one is and the other uh, hasn't yet come. When that king comes, he must remain for only a short time. As for the beast, that was and is not itself an eighth king that belongs to the seven, and it's going, it's going to destruction. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who haven't yet received royal power but they will receive royal authority for an hour along with the beast. These kings will be one of mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will emerge victorious for his lord of lords, king of kings. Those with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples, crowds, nations, and languages. As for the ten horns that you saw, uh, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will destroy her and strip her where they will devour her flesh and burn her with fire. Because God moved them to carry out his purposes. That's why they will will be of one mind and give the royal power to the beast, until God's word have been accomplished. The woman whom you saw is the great city that rules over the king of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Will you all pray with me, please? Holy Spirit, we ask that um, just that you would come and be near to us in this space and this morning. Um, yeah, in like a, a, a tender and a tangible way, Lord. Um, we ask that you would grant us wisdom and courage and joy. And we love you. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Um, If I have not met you, which might be just a couple people, I'm Sarah, and it is so nice to see you all this morning. I have been gone like the last kind of few weeks. I just get, got back this last week, and so I have actually missed most of our um, like summer series in the book of Revelation. So I'm curious how that has been for everyone. 
And I'm thinking we're actually going to do something that um, I have never done before. It's kind of like a fun game. Um, and I'm going to ask everyone to actually close your eyes, unless that's not a thing for you, in which case you don't need to. That's fine. But everybody, close your eyes. Okay. And um, I want you to raise your hand with your eyes closed if, so far this summer, you have learned something new about the book of Revelation. Wow. Cool. Okay. Hands down. Thank you. Thank you. Um, next question. Keep your eyes closed. I want you to raise your hand if there is still anything that feels very confusing about the book of Revelation. Wow, me too. Okay, awesome, hands down. Last one, um, this is for like the real fanatics in the room. Raise your hand if there is anyone who the book of Revelation is now your favorite book of the Bible. Oh, cool. Okay, hands down, hands down. Um, you can open your eyes now. Thank you all. That was very fun for me and um, very indulgent. Um, so it seems like I am in agreement with some of y'all. Um, as I have been studying Revelation, I have been feeling myself being sort of stretched and grown from my usual ways of thinking about even what scripture is and what scripture is for. So I, I like to think of myself as someone with um, like a fairly high tolerance for ambiguity because I love stories. Does anyone else love stories? Got some, some head nods, cool. Um, I love stories, I love parables, I love anything, anytime that there's like just a little bit of space between the words between what's being said and what it could possibly mean. Just a little space there. And I had this professor in college who said that stories are like potholders for the truth. They're like oven mitts for truth when the truth is too hot to handle. Because stories give us a way to say what we can't say otherwise, a way to like pick up these hot, hot truths and you know bring them to the table to feed them to the family, I'm not sure. <laughs> stories kind of meander around and they can seep the truth through our defenses and through our logical hangups and they can trick us into compassion and wisdom. And I wonder if anyone else here this morning also loves the moment after a story. We only get this sometimes. We get it lots of times in the parables where the storyteller says, and this is what the story means. The moral of the story is, like, don't eat eggs or, like, whatever it is. For prideful people like me, that moment is like, I knew it. Of course. Of course all of that talk about the tortoise and the hare was not really just about small animal foot races. The seeds aren't just seeds, and the coins are not just coins, and the sheep aren't just sheep. Like, I knew that was going on. It's so satisfying. And the, the book of Revelation, what I love slash hate about the book of Revelation is that Revelation takes that idea and runs with it, just like explodes that idea. Like if most stories were here, Revelation is like here. Um, it's unlike most stories or fables or parables that we hear. And we've kind of talked about that before in this series, how 
Revelation fits within this literary genre called apocalypse or apocalyptic writing, which has some specific features to it. Also, I wish that every time we said apocalypse in church, that like seat belts would pop up on everyone's chairs and we all had to like strap in and get ready. That's how this feels. So in apocalyptic writing, there's usually um, a messenger. There's an angel or an otherworldly being that's coming and revealing. Like imagine the lifting up of a veil, um, revealing this narrative that involves these supernatural transcendent realities and these powers engaged in like a cosmic battle over the end of time. The scale is universal, time frames get sped up and then slowed down, and the images are oftentimes really difficult to understand. In this series so far, we've talked about how apocalypse literature is like resistance literature. It's hope literature, because it's oftentimes being written in a historical moment or a political situation when, for God's people, there seems to be no hope from the powers of oppression and fear and deceit, and God seems to be very far away. We see all of this in Revelation. In this apocalypse, the vision that John receives is meaningful, like packed with meaning, down to the last crumb. But it's not the type of meaning that we can be scientists about and like work the puzzle and come up with a definitive answer. X in Revelation equals why in the world. Because in Apocalypse, the focus isn't on what's going to be easily metabolized into our conceptions of reality. The focus is on a, a deeper and a more, like, hang with me, a more real reality than what we're used to that clues us into something true about the forces at work in the world and something true about the God that we know. I'm reminded of um, a moment from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Does anyone else see this fly up here? <laughs> Forgive me, please. Um, it might be an apocalyptic battle between me and the fly, this whole sermon. <laughs> um, so I'm reminded in talking about that with um, this, this moment in The Great Divorce. Has anyone read that? Yeah, lots of folks. Um, in this book, there's this earthly narrator who is zoomed on a bus up to this like heavenly landscape. It's very interesting. And when he sets out to walk across this heavenly field, he finds out that he can't very easily because the, the grass, the actual blades of grass, are made of a reality that is deeper than the reality of earth. So they actually don't bend when he steps on them. They're like too real. They're more real than his feet. So he ends up sort of hobbling across this field on grass that feels like sharp, knobbly rocks. Kind of as I imagine us actually like hobbling through the text of Revelation, where our conception of reality can't quite hold or like make sense of what one author calls a realism of a higher order. So as we're reading, even this morning, and all this strange stuff is happening, what Revelation asks us is, what if? What if instead of being less true because it is strange, what if it is more true? It's kind of mind-boggly. Um, and that is the puzzle that brings us to our text this morning. So I don't want to zoom completely past chapters 15 and 16. We'll stop there for a second. 
Since last week, when we were in um, chapter 14, John, our reporter in the book of Revelation, has been on the move. Chapter 15 and 16 focus on these seven plagues, these seven bowls of judgment that are being poured out on the earth. And we won't spend a lot of time here except to notice one thing. In verse 15.1, it says that these seven plagues are the last, the last plagues, because with them, God's anger is brought to an end. That um, struck me because I don't think I have ever experienced human or creaturely anger as having a last moment or an ending. Like, I know in myself when I act in anger, if ever I'm like, here are my plagues of judgment on you, that brings more anger in me. That, like, breeds more anger. And I think we see this in, like, warfare, in relationships, in families. For us, for creatures, anger brings anger. But for God, justice, judgment is measured down to the very last drop. And I still have a lot of questions about what it means to follow a God who is so holy that wrath and judgment are a part of this story. But this depiction, this passage does remind me that my creaturely conception of wrath and anger are just so different, so qualitatively different and so small compared to the Lord's. And all of that sets us up to turn the page into chapter 17, which is our reading from this morning. As we begin to read, we see with John the image of this woman who is labeled in verse 1, which we didn't read, as the great prostitute. Now, we're going to take just a minute. As I've been studying, um, that, that name, that label, has actually been pretty difficult for me. Um, so I've been sitting with that discomfort and trying to ask what it is that's going on there. Um, and I think at like a really basic level, it's just that women get so little face time in the Bible in general that I'm like disappointed to see a female character who's like the epitome of evil. I'm like, what a waste. But then as I've been delving deeper and with some more research, I've been discovering and reading about how women are oftentimes, more often than men, Um, used as metaphors for um, objects and concepts that are not women. So we see this both in like classical and modern literature and then also in the Bible, where usually by male authorship, women and women's bodies are used to talk about, like to talk about cities, to talk about land, to talk about people groups, to talk about countries. We saw that even last week in the way, in the, the woman of Revelation 12, who's this amazing character, how that character connects then to all these other like female and woman-connected symbols. She connects to Mary. She's connected to the Israelite people. She's connected to the church. Um, a lot of us have also read in the Old Testament, there's these metaphors where unfaithfulness to Yahweh is described with metaphors of adultery and prostitution. Um, and we'll see even in a few weeks how the city, the new Jerusalem, is described with this beautiful image, this metaphor of a a bride coming down dressed in white. So as I've been studying and like learning about this, I've also been thinking about just like curious about the effect that these metaphors 
have on us on how we read scripture um, and then who we become in that reading because that's like how we're formed. Um, and one thing I'll say is that I have heard many women talk about the harmful effects of a uh, purity culture that like tells them, tells us that um, their worth and like the most important part of their like spiritual identity is related just to their sexual purity or their marital status. Um, I've also heard women speak to how difficult it can feel to be stuck in between these like biblical binaries. So between like Eve and Mary or between like the faithful and the unfaithful, between even this great prostitute and the bride of Christ dressed in white. Sometimes it can feel like there's these types and there's not a lot of space in between for other experiences of the world. And maybe this is part of the unveiling, part of what Revelation can teach us, is that even like the language of the Bible is not without complication, and it's, it's not without harm. And that we are allowed to ask, it's okay for us to ask, how is this forming us? How is this metaphor forming us as a people reading this scripture? Is it forming us in virtue? Is it turning us toward the Lamb? And so even for this image today, something I want us to be thinking about is, um, is this forming us in compassion with the experiences of women? Um, and as an aside, I would love to invite, just as like a thought experiment for anyone who doesn't identify as a woman here and is up for it, um, spend some time trying to read these biblical metaphors and like just pretend, just imagine that your own gender is implicated in them. I would like love to hear what comes out of that. Um, there's, there's so much conversation to be had here, and I think this is part of the richness that we get in reading scripture together in a community, is that we can do this work together. And I will say that one thing I know to be true, probably more deeply than anything, um, is that God is not afraid of our questions, and that God's word is not going to crumble when we, when we bring the fullness of um, our lives and like the toughest, most burning questions that we have to it. So. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, I think I needed something there. <laughs> We're gonna go back to the text. John is describing this woman, this prostitute, by telling us that she is seated on a scarlet feast and by telling us what she's wearing. Y'all have probably noticed, but clothes are everywhere in the book of Revelation, and it's like middle school, where everyone's outfit means something about them, you know? And there's this paradox here, because even though her profession is considered shameful, her clothes imply royalty and prestige. But it's, it's not necessarily beauty. Like last week, the woman of Revelation 12 is beautiful. She is clothed with the sun itself. But this woman is clothed with scarlet and purple and jewels. She's covered in wealth, but she's filled with blood. She's holding this cup of impurities, and she's actually drunk with the blood of the saints. It's a terrifying image. And what I want to like zoom in on is John's response to all of this. John says, I was completely stunned when I saw her. John is amazed. He marvels, says one translation. 
And this kind of makes sense to me. Here is this woman dressed in imperial splendor. She is glittering, but she is drunk on the blood of those who love and follow Jesus. I can't imagine everything that John must be feeling upon seeing her. Revulsion, terror, attraction, anger. John is stunned. He's silent. Maybe he even can't move. But the angel that is with him, I just, I imagine this angel taking John by the shoulders and turning him from looking at this woman. And this angel says, why are you amazed? And I love this question. I think this question shoots straight to the heart of what it means to be a follower of the Lamb, even a follower today reading this book of mysteries. Why are you amazed at what is evil? Yes, the forces at work here are powerful, but they are also ordinary. They are mundane. The angel explains to John, it's no mystery you see here. This woman, the name Babylon, is temporarily in power, momentarily in power. The beast that she rides on is connected to the kings of the earth that she has seduced, but they're going to hate her. They're going to betray her, and then they're going to give their allegiance to the beast that's going to make war on the land. But don't look at them either, I imagine this angel saying. Don't look at those kings. Don't be amazed at the wrong thing. The angel is pulling John into the secret. They, those kings, and the beast, they are already on the way, their way to destruction. The powers that you see here, they're already passing away. But the lamb is victorious. Look to the lamb. Direct your awe to the one who is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. There's so much going on here in this moment, this one vision. Most scholars connect the, the woman with the name Babylon to the Christian community's experience of Rome. So to this vast empire allied with the kings of the world and drunk with violence. But like everything in Revelation, there's space open for us not just to see this as a critique of historical Rome, but also a critique of the forces of empire and tyranny throughout history. This is a vision of what one scholar calls ordinary empire, like the everyday ways in which we see political and economic and military might form alliances with violence and cruelty and coercion in order to stay control, oftentimes in the name of a false deity. And I'm reminded looking like with John at this woman, that injustice doesn't always look unjust. There's a facade of imperial beauty that can disguise idolatry and terror. Like I think we see this in the way that battles, like battles of rhetoric cover over human rights issues and reframe oppression and violence in terms of policy and profit. Even today, um, Sunday, July 14th, there are immigration raids across 10 um, US cities targeting folks who have never been involved with the justice system. And whatever your political views are, I don't think there are very many of us who would disagree that that is a political action that is intended to produce fear. 
It's intended to increase this sense of control over our bodies and the bodies of our neighbors. And recently in Lakewood, this neighborhood, I've had the chance to sit with some of our neighbors and to hear about how some of these forces are playing out economically. How like when the spaces that we inhabit together are made safer and more comfortable and more accessible for certain types of bodies, oftentimes white bodies, oftentimes wealthier bodies, then they are oftentimes being made less safe and less comfortable and less accessible for other types of bodies. Lots of times under this language of like development or growth. I'm, I'm hearing these folks say that the shiny and the new and the hip can mask realities of discrimination, mask loss of housing, and mask fear. And like these are, I know these are complex issues. They, they feel to me as complex as reading Revelation does. There's no one-to-one, -one, there's not like a quick way to solve these systems or to moralize this story. And I wish that reading the world that we lived in was as easy as reading the tortoise and the hare. But the reality of our situation is more apocalyptic than that. The powers that are at work here and now are cosmic in scale, and they are spiritual. And we don't we don't know, we can't always tell what is facade and what is built on truth and what is empire and what is the kingdom of God. And when we look at all of that complexity and entanglement, looking at something like gentrification or the prison system, it is easy for us to be stunned, to be amazed, paralyzed, like John looking at that woman. But I love, there's this moment in this chapter, verse 9, it might be up there, where the angel is right in the middle of explaining to John what John is seeing. And then the angel stops and says, hmm, this calls for an understanding mind. Some translations say, this, this calls for wisdom. It reminds me of, strangely, Ezekiel 37, when the Spirit leads Ezekiel out to this valley of dry bones, and the Lord asks Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel, in my favorite moment probably ever, looks back at God and says, Oh Lord, you know. <laughs> As if to say, like, well, God, it's really hard to say right now. Like, this is difficult, what I'm doing. But, I imagine Ezekiel saying this, like, but God, my faith is not in my ability to get it right. It's in yours. So I'm just going to stay here with you and pay attention to what you're doing. There's a reminder here that when we don't know what is true and when we can't tell what is beautiful, the task in front of us is just to make sure that our amazement is in the right place and to draw near to the one who is truth himself. Wisdom is where the lamb is, where the spirit is. I was recently on a trip where I and some buddies um, were actually sleeping on boats for like three weeks. And the first few nights that we were out there, we had the hardest, most difficult time remembering that when we were going to bed, we were supposed to let out some of the line that was tying up these boats. Because if we didn't let the line out, the, the tide was going to go down in the night and our boats were going to be beached in the morning. 
it's really hard to remember because as you're going to bed, you don't see the tide changing under your feet. But after a few nights, after a couple mornings of having beached boats, um, it became this habit for us. It felt like as natural as um, brushing our teeth. Gotta let the line out. There's one author who calls the world that we live in now the apocalyptic ordinary. Because these cosmic powers of deceit and of love are always and already vying for our attention and our devotion. And I wonder if living in response to the apocalyptic ordinary is just a little bit like learning to prepare for the tide changing. It doesn't mean that we have to live in fear. We don't have to sit up all night watching the tide change. We know it's coming. We are clued into the secret. But it does mean that we have such an awareness of the unseen forces at work in our everyday that we create habits of preparation, habits of proactive attention that keep us from becoming complacent and blind to the powers that are fighting for our lives. I wonder what, what would happen if we wove into the fabric of our days practices that kept us spiritually awake, kept us sober and discerning about what is going on around us. I think that means political attention, praying for our leaders, protesting, advocating, educating. I think it means economic attention, so like knowing how our economics affect others, who makes what we buy, and under what conditions. I think it means thinking about our food, like is our food fit for the apocalypse? And more than anything, I think it means clinging to practices, to habits of attention and devotion to Christ in and through and with everything we see and do and learn. And this looks different for everyone. I, What I don't really mean is like just doing a devotion every morning and checking that off your list, although for some people that really works. What I do mean is to the core of us, learning, searching out the disciplines and habits that we need alone and in community to help us fix our eyes on Jesus. We, we can't cruise control in the apocalyptic ordinary. We need to be near to wisdom to know how to be wise. So we've, we've talked in this series about how Revelation is both a theopolitical text and a worship text. And even in this chapter where there's no hymn, I can't get away from worship because it's only by nearness to the spirit that John's eyes are turned from amazement and fear of Babylon, of this false empire, and back to the victory of the Lamb. It's by worship that we can see clearly, by worship that we take part in the Lamb's politics. It's by worship that we can name the powers of death as what they are and that we can stay awake in this cosmic story that we're a part of. It's by worship, um, I think about even just what we're doing here this morning, that we do not become overwhelmed or stunned by the powers that are already crumbling in their own greed. And it's by worship that we can keep our eyes on the lamb who is victorious. I wish 
that the times that we lived in were an easy story to interpret. I wish we knew one for one how to read the signs, tortoise and the hare, how to live in the world with perfect knowledge of what is evil and what is good and what is false and what is true. That would be excellent. But I'm also thankful that our faith isn't in us or in our ability to perform religion or ethics. I'm really glad that we are a part of a story that is even bigger than what we can understand fully and glad that there's like a deeper reality that we can't see that is even now making sense of everything that we can. Yeah, will you all pray with me, please? Jesus, victorious one, thank you for um, your wisdom Thank you that you are the source of all wisdom. God, we ask that you would send your spirit to make us brave, that you would send your spirit to, to grab our shoulders and to redirect our eyes to you whenever we are overwhelmed um, by what we see. Grant us discernment. Grant us laughter, the, the like beautiful and subversive force that that is. Um, and more than anything, God, we just ask that you would um, stay with us. We love you, and we're just so thankful even for your presence with us this morning. Amen.